Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today we're going to listen to a lecture that was given here at Beeson in 2004 as a part of our annual Biblical Studies Lectures. And we're going to hear a lecture by Professor Robert Gordon. He is the Emeritus Regis Professor of Hebrew at the University of Cambridge in Great Britain. One of the world's leading Old Testament scholars, and his lectureship here at Beeson was really on the whole theme of creation and fall. And this lecture we're going to hear today is entitled, The Week That Made the World. He's going to take us back into the text of the early chapters of Genesis and deal with that issue, sometimes very controversial uh, issues that come up in this uh, part of God's Word. I think you'll find a lot of insight and help as we listen to Professor Robert Gordon speak on the week that made the world. It's a pleasure indeed to be back this morning and to see that there are survivors from yesterday. One of the questions that already you must be asking is, with Messrs. Matthews and Ross in residence, why on earth did he pick this subject? And uh, I've been asking myself that recently when I've had time to think about it. It's partly because uh, regularly and for quite a while I have been discussing in a mini-series this sort of thing back in Cambridge without much authority but simply as a residual activity in the Faculty of Divinity where I once was for quite a few years I'm now in the Faculty of Oriental Studies where we are not supposed to think about the text we read. We just parse them and translate them and uh, on you go on to the next one when you have done that. So I don't know, you can attribute it to another episode of The Madness of King George or something like that, um, that I have tried in their presence and in the presence of you all, my brothers and sisters, to talk on Genesis and to the title, The Week That Made the World. I referred yesterday to the beginning of our Bible, the first page of the Bible, and I'm going to do it again. Indeed, I have. The first page of the Bible matters, and so do people's perceptions of what is found on that first page. Of course, originally, Bibles were on scrolls, or Bible books were written on scrolls, and questions of order and what was the first page were less pressing in those pre-codex times. You might think of those Qumran jars that had scrolls in them, and you might think, if you uh, find you're disengaging already from my topic, you might think of how you might play about with the jars and get the biblical books in the right order and maybe mark them and that sort of thing, or maybe you wouldn't bother. Canon, in the sense of fixed order, of books, of course, depended on the existence of the books, or most of them, and so that idea, that concept, and that preoccupation was one that came a little later. At the same time, the position and role of Genesis 1 in relation to the rest of the developing Hebrew canon would never have been in much doubt. Genesis 1 is about the beginning. 
it's dealing with things before Jeremiah and Amos and so on, so it wouldn't have called for much ingenuity on the part of people as they collected their scrolls to think this one deals with the earliest times. How early? Famously, Archbishop James Usher, 1581 to 1656, I couldn't have told you that a few seconds ago, calculated that creation took place on the 23rd of October, 4004. Some people say at 9 a.m. I'm not sure that that actually was the case. But I have suggested to, to, to classes in England who are not up as early as you folk are here, I noticed that if it had been 9 a.m., many of them would have missed it. <laughs> James Usher is probably known, if he's known at all, for this date in 4004, but he was a man, to quote one of those who knows about him, of an erudition seldom matched by that of his critics. And in fact, he wrote 2,000 pages on the chronology of the ancient world, beginnings, a la Genesis, was just one of those items that he was concerned with. Like those of his day, like Robert Louth subsequently and so many others of the period, he was immersed in the classical world and gave an immense amount of time and energy to sorting out classical tradition, classical chronology. But Genesis 1 and 4004 and even 23rd of October uh, did certainly figure in his calculations. Calculations that today we tend not to take with quite the same seriousness as used to be the case. But the Archbishop's answer to the question that he set himself assumes a complete set of data and a correct understanding of the nature of the material in early Genesis, and so people have their problems and people pose their questions. In one important respect, I'm sure there are others, the archbishop was, of course, correct. The Genesis proto-history, Genesis 1 to 11, is of a piece with the patriarchal narratives that follow it. Proto-history and patriarchs represent an historical continuum. There is no break somewhere around chapter 11 or according to some back in chapter 9 that says, at this point, we move into serious history. It's presented as relatively, relatively seamless. This continuum is indicated by the most explicit structuring element in Genesis, the Toledot, or generations formulae, in chapter 2, 4, 5, 1, 6, 9, 10, 1, if you're noting them, I'll uh, be surprised. Whatever Genesis 1 and following tells us, or tells us not about the date of creation and flood, it presents to us a view of the world in which history moves linearly from creation towards a God-appointed telos. It doesn't go round and round in circles. Back in Britain, I was able to compare the perpetual beef crisis over there, which just went on endlessly. It's not gone round in circles, that history, endlessly, 
pointlessly, but it's moving on. That's represented, isn't it, in the very ordering of the books as we have in our Hebrew and English canons, by and large, in the way in which you have in the first part of the Old Testament virtual continuous history, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, poor old Ruth, forget her for the moment, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Well, it's virtually a continuous history, isn't it? It's saying something, the way that has been ordered for us. Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and so on make their contribution. There was a beginning, but there is an end also in view, as perhaps is hinted in that unending Sabbath that God seems to enjoy in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. You notice he takes a break from work, and you're never told that uh, he came back on and clocked in again. Uh, and our Lord confirms that because he says that all his works were done at the beginning of creation, which is interesting, amidst an expanding universe and new stars and so on and so forth. There you are. Cosmogony is part of history. Beginnings, proto-history fits with what follows. In offering such an opinion, of course, we encroach upon the ever-present genre quest question. Genre. What sort of texts are we dealing with, especially in early Genesis? Particularly difficult it is there. The usual question, whose genre is particularly pressing? Is it that of the ancient writer? I mean, is he writing history? Is he writing story? Is he writing saga? Is he writing something else? And are we thinking of the term he would use or that would have been available? Or are we thinking of a term that we impose on the text that will guide and govern, certainly influence, the way we read and interpret the text? Well, it's the old one, isn't it? Uh, a telephone directory is different from a songbook. I know there are people who actually have made um, a living out of trying to sing bits of the telephone directory, the, the king's singers and so on over in England. But that's not the norm. You don't pick up a telephone directory in the morning and uh, intone in order to praise the Lord. It has its use, its purpose. And so literature is read according to our perception of its purpose. But even if no term or class is adequate, and our resident colleagues, I think, would agree, we still must address the question of authorial intention. That applies to the whole Bible, doesn't it? Because sometimes the possibility of discerning that, the legitimacy of that quest, is actually queried by people. Texts so often are treated as free-floating, and uh, your reading and mine are, are perspectives on it, but there is no governing sense or communication that we can say is what the text was intended to convey. That's tough when you come to such a text as Holy Scripture and with our traditional understanding of it as God-given with very definite intention behind the written words. Of course, the much-invoked intentional fallacy, uh, uh, Wimsett and Beardsley, of a few decades ago, doesn't stand in the way. 
since it had to do with the bringing in of external data to the interpretation of the text. Now, that itself uh, can be opened up into an area of uh, fruitful discussion. But the intentional fallacy doesn't forbid us, even if it had divine authority, from looking for signs of intention in a text. Certainly, we may look for them in biblical texts. Indeed, in his article, Motives and Intention, in Genesis 1, written some years ago, Mark Brett recognizes not only underlying motive and communicative intent as legitimate foci of attention, even those indirect hints of intentionality that come under the heading of conversational implicature are there for consideration. What on earth is conversational implicature? The concise Oxford Dictionary offers an illustration. You say, looking at a picture or something like that, the frame is nice. Are you implying that you don't like the picture itself? Just what you said possibly conveys something else, a kind of subtext. I used this once recently in Cambridge in illustrating something, referred back to my childhood. It just came to, to, to mind. I remember when the truth without the term came to my awareness many, many years ago, over 40 years ago, maybe quite a bit over 40 years ago, back in Belfast, a kindly, lovely, godly, as they say, lady once in church said, what lovely teeth he has of me. And I remember thinking to myself, she's implying something else. That's conversational implicature. And I think we shall find it very helpful and significant in relation to uh, the book of Genesis and these early chapters. We can see in them the polemical undercurrents in the accounts of the creation days in Genesis 1, Genesis 1, and in various episodes that follow in the next chapters. It's a commonplace, isn't it, that the names of the sun and moon, deities among Israel's neighbors, don't feature in the account of the making of the heavenly bodies. That's well known, isn't it? Instead, we have the greater light and the lesser light. And then we have, in the same verse in Genesis, a throwaway reference to the stars just at the very end. You know, those things that you're consulting every morning before you come to work. And he made also the stars. It's just ve'et ha'kukavim. And also the stars. Sort of like dash, the stars. God makes them. They are such a small consideration as far as his creative power and might are concerned. Now, that withholding of the names that we all know about is, of course, all the more noticeable in Genesis 1 because we have actually giving of names five times in the same chapter. Day is named, night is named, so are sky and land and seas, verses 5 and 8 and 10. And when you have in the early part of the chapter actually established a principle of naming when you come to around verse 14 and withhold the obvious names because your Shemesh in Hebrew for sun 
is so like Babylonian Shamash, a god of various things and light and judgment and so on, justice. Well, if you want to make a point, if you want to indulge in conversational implicature, perhaps, or something a bit like it, you hold the name back. Point made. Also, and I hope I get round to it again, also, of course, you are already in the business of discovering functionality for the text. And the big, big lesson that one wants to learn, that I try to learn and apply when I come to such a text as Genesis 1 is, if you can find evidence of purpose and function that the text itself is bringing before you, then perhaps that relieves you of attributing other functions and significances to the text. Because you overwork it then. You overexegete. You do other things to it. Today's title implies that we're concerned principally with Genesis, and that's certainly correct. And Genesis 1 and 2 must sometimes come into the frame. You would agree, perhaps, that there are not two accounts of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. There are two creation narratives. That's different. With their own special features and emphases. Narrative number 2, effectively chapter 2, more or less starts where the first leaves off with the creation of Adam or the man and the garden in which he would live and work. Now, there are clear differences in outlook and emphasis between the two narratives. So it is actually advantageous to recognize their discreteness. That is, that they are independent narratives with their own perspectives. Uh, I came across secondarily um, in a piece by Anthony Grafton, an article on a chapter on Isaac La Perere entitled A Southerner's Dream of Men Before Adam. I thought that was especially appropriate for you people. A Southerner's Dream of Men Before Adam. And he advanced way back, long time ago, the view that chapter one is about humanity in general, and chapter two is about the making of the Jewish human being or Jewish people. Not so, I would have thought, but still differences in perspective. To deny the narratives their individual integrity would be to create unnecessary tensions and contradictions. Now, the instances I'm going to cite are well known. You will have spotted them already. Wait till you hear what I say about them. It has often been noted that the creation of plant life precedes that of humans in chapter 1, whereas it comes after in chapter 2. And that the animals are created after Adam in chapter 2, whereas they precede the humans in chapter 1. These are differences not to be papered over with arguments such as that different types of plants are involved. I think I have to say that kind of argument doesn't really work when you look at it and try to distinguish between 
relatively common and synonymous and even overlapping terms in the relevant verses. I don't think that type of argument really works as far as vegetation vis-a-vis -vis the humans uh, is concerned. And as far as humans and animals, there is the evangelical pluperfect in chapter 2, verse 19. You know about the evangelical pluperfect. That's when things are pushed back into the past for the sake of the uh, consistency and integrity of the text. It's particularly we evangelicals who do it, hence the term. And so 2.19 in the like of NIV will read, Now the Lord had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field. And that's supposed to deal with the problem about animals and humans and the order of creation and the tension between chapters 2 and 1. But I don't think that evangelical pluperfect in 2.19 is the wonder cure that it's made out to be. After all, even that ploy leaves open the possibility that the animals were created after Adam, the man, though before Eve. You still have to uh, push the pluperfect back before Adam. The pluperfect itself doesn't do it. It opens up the possibility if you're minded to push and shove and kick like Paddy McGinty's goat, if you've ever heard of him. But I'm not in Boston, where I'm sure they have. I came through Boston. I go back through Boston. I have very little else in common with Irishness in Boston, I have to say. It is only the exegetical exigency of conforming to the plain sequence of chapter 1 that produces the pluperfect and the interpretation riding upon it. We should be careful lest the cure proves worse than the disease. In chapter 2, the charming suggestion that the animals were actually surveyed by the Lord for their social potential in relation to Adam is quite lost once you introduce your pluperfect with the attendant interpretation. John Milton spotted this. He enjoyed the thought that the animals were actually paraded before the man as God was seeking a helpmeet, a helper for Adam. And it's a lovely picture. Methinks it's actually what the Bible wants to convey to us. The Bible sometimes is, I use the word guardedly, a book with humor in it. Can you imagine Adam with a crick neck trying to hold a conversation with a giraffe? Uh, it has its limitations, hasn't it, socially? Or looking at the wolf and admiring the wolf's teeth and then prophetically thinking of Little Red Riding Hood or something like that. And then, of course, the text proves that uh, there were no dogs in Eden. Because if man's best friend had been in Eden, <laughs> there would have been no need for Eve. Yet even if verses 19 to 20a are treated as parenthetical, and we have our evangelical pluperfect, the animal still relates somehow to God's quest for a suitable helper for Adam. The parenthesis, so-called, is framed by statements about the helper. Verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then the animal reference. 
and then immediately afterwards. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Is the text trying to tell us something about the animals? I suspect so. So, if we give those two narratives their independent integrity, allow them their perspectival differences, we can handle that within a high view of Scripture. It is when we try to fit them, the, the football into the tennis ball, uh, the one into the other, that we impose upon them, I think, tests that they don't need to fulfill and that they were not intended to answer. Now, as we zoom in on Genesis 1, we should recall Rabbi Louis Jacob's conclusion about the whole Old Testament that Israel developed no cosmology of its own. Even Isaiah 40, verse 22, comes under this rule. God sits enthroned above, above the circle of the earth. I remember back in my school days in uh, Belfast, one of my teachers, a very keen Christian lovely lady, in her later years did a, a marvelous work among uh, the paramilitaries in prison. When she couldn't get in to see some of the worst cases, she simply wrote to the queen and she was lifted in by helicopter. And the commanding officer had to uh, play with Her Majesty's um, permissions. But I remember she once telling us in class, it was a maths class, but that's, by the way, uh, that the Bible, you see, had got away ahead of ancient understanding of cosmology and the world and so on. God sits above the circle of the earth. Shows that there was an appreciation that uh, this world is a, a sphere. But a circle is not a sphere, is it? Certainly not as intended in Isaiah 40. The verse continues, and its people are like grasshoppers, not globetrotters. Used to have Harlem ones. I don't know whether they, do they still play? Yes, they do. Grasshoppers, not globetrotters. A circle is not a sphere. At the same time, Genesis 1 is free of the type of mythology, creation or otherwise, that is permissible in the poetic parts of the Old Testament, the Psalms, the wisdom texts, prophecy. We have no Rahab, no Leviathan, the gliding serpent, none of those creatures uh, featuring. All right, we've got uh, the uh, serpentine creatures mentioned in relation to creation, but not as opposing figures or features in the creation narrative. Whether in Isaiah and Psalm 74 and so on, what we really have is creation in view, or creation secondarily, well, we'll leave that aside. The fact is, creation-type mythology is possible in the poetry of the Hebrew Bible. But Genesis 1 is sober prose an account of beginnings in which theology certainly is present and, I guess, paramount. And as a sober prose account of creation, Genesis 1 is about a working week of 24-hour days. Short time, 
better than the first nanosecond or the first three minutes after the big bang with Steven Weinberg, but just a working week, six days of work of 24 hours. Well, that's including the work and the nighttime rest, no doubt. Days of a thousand years, a la Psalm 90, are beside the point. A device, an invention to make Genesis sound more scientific. I am told, you will have read, that days of a thousand years would uh, create problems for symbiotic relationships, with insects, plants, pollination, and all that sort of thing. I will take that on trust. I certainly am not going to investigate it. There was evening and there was morning is certainly an unlikely way to represent geological periods. Already in antiquity, the delayed creation of sun and moon was calling for comment, since ordinary days were held to be dependent on the good offices. And we may suspect polemic in not only the withholding of the names already mentioned, but in their apparent relegation, relegation to day four, in deference to another light source created already on day one. Polemic even in the locating of sun and moon and stars in day four. Now, it may be that we cannot quite escape the pull of the moon even on day one. I, I throw this out. I, I would need to investigate this. Um, it's something quite beyond me and certainly beyond my reading at present. But counting the day from evening apparently is characteristic of societies that use a lunar calendar, as did ancient Israel. I come across the term lunisolar and so on, but anyway... There is disagreement about what is implied by there was evening, there was morning. It doesn't say there was night, there was day, but for good reason, because day is already used in the text, and we would have confusion. And we have questions whether let there be light inaugurates the first day, or was the prevenient darkness taken notice of, and therefore we have evening and morning and all that kind of thing. I rather suspect and I'm putting this aside for the present, I rather suspect that since there is evidence of a calculation of the day from sunset in at least some biblical texts, an ancient article now, Vedas Testamentum, 1966, goes into this in some detail, since that is the case for at least some of the Old Testament texts, I'm inclined to think that this is part of the structure imposed on the Genesis 1 account. In any case, it is a 24-7 week that provides the structure for creation in Genesis 1. And it's a working week perhaps more so than we sometimes recognize. Vesterman, in one of his numerous works on Genesis, talks about the different kinds of creation that you find in ancient texts. Combat, struggle among deities and others, fashioning or making, begetting, and fiat, let there be, as in Genesis 1, creation by word. 
Two of these feature in Genesis 1. One of them we tend to emphasize, and the other we don't speak of quite so much. Fiat, let there be, and fashioning, making, the work of the artificer. Creation by fiat, when God says simply, let there be, is often cited as the characteristic and distinguishing mode of God's action in Genesis. Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were formed. True. And it is, in a sense, the, the, the framing uh, action of God in even Genesis 1. Let there be. However, creation by word is not unique to Genesis. It is also found in the Egyptian Memphite theology of creation. Thus all the gods were formed, and his Ennead was completed, nine deities, the Ennead. Indeed, all the divine order really came into being through what the heart thought and the tongue commanded. That text is a pretty old text, itself dated to about 700, possibly on internal grounds going back as much as 2,000 years. It has unsavory aspects to it, we might qualify its use of creation by word. One of our noted commentators, for example, in our presence, uses the term magic in relation to the operation of the word in this particular text. Nevertheless, and while conceding the possibility, it is talking about something not a hundred miles away from what Genesis is saying about creation by the word of God. Now, what am I saying? I'm saying that that encourages me not only to appreciate that Genesis 1 is talking about creation by word, one of the ways in which God is presented as the creator, but also to pay attention to those other aspects that I have labeled creation by fashioning, by making, as a potter makes, as a carpenter as a craftsman in wood or stone. And so emerges, as we think down this line, uh, God the workman. God the workman. He exerts himself like any human, and at the end of his working week, not only does he stop working, Genesis 1 over into 2, he refreshes himself refreshes himself. Interesting to look at the occurrences. The one I have particularly in mind is in Exodus 31, verse 17. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he ceased work and refreshed himself. And in Hebrew terms, that conveys something more than simply that he stopped, took a break. I think it means he took a drink. He washed his face. He rested. He recovered his strength. Why do I say that? Well, the verb is used in two other texts. Exodus 23, verse 12, in relation to the Decalogal Sabbath commandment. On the seventh day you shall abstain from work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and your home-born slave and the alien may refresh themselves. The verb nafash again in use. Slave and alien may 
refresh themselves. Maybe better still. 2 Samuel 16, verse 14. David, King David, has evacuated Jerusalem at the start of the Absalom Rebellion. It's a distressing business. It's a hot and sweaty business. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination at the Jordan, exhausted. And there he refreshed himself. Picture is clear, isn't it? Now, that same verb is used in my first text quoted here from Exodus 31, 17, in relation to God at creation. He worked six days, and he refreshed himself like a workman, like those slaves and aliens in the second quoted text. It's a pretty expressive, is the word anthropopathism, whichever it is anyway here. It's a pretty expressive uh, notion, isn't it, in Exodus 31. NIV translates, in that case, in relation to God, simply, and he rested, but is happy with the others refreshing themselves. That's a little bit of quiet editing that NIV does quite a lot of in the interests of all our faith and sanity. But there you are. I will say no more. God refreshed himself, according to Exodus 31. Contrary-wise, another perspective, of course, in the poetry of Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and by implication, he will not need to wayin a fish himself. God the workman is also suggested by the resonances between the creation narrative and the account of the completion of the tabernacle, the Mosaic tabernacle in Exodus 39. I've got to abbreviate this, otherwise it becomes cumbersome. But, and God saw in Genesis 1 and 2, and God saw the heavens and the earth were completed. God blessed. In Exodus 39, Moses saw all the work was completed, Moses blessed. This is standard fare in commentaries, isn't it? Like a lot else that I'm saying. It is sometimes suggested that the parallels are possible between God and Moses, creation and tabernacle, because creation is viewed as a kind of sanctuary where the divine presence resides. Genesis 1, you're creating a kind of chapel, sanctuary, temple in which God may have his dwelling. And so it's not surprising that similar language is used in the completion of the account of creation and the completion of the account of the tabernacle. But actually, and the Israeli scholar uh, Avigdor Herovitz suggests this, and I rather am persuaded by him, the correspondence is because creation is seen as a building construction, as was the tabernacle, tent of meeting, a building construction. God was involved in creation in building. Moses superintended the building of the tabernacle, and the parallels are not so much creation equals sanctuary, but both are basically construction construction operations. Actually, 
in Mesopotamian creation accounts, I think it is the most commonly used verb of the gods making of the world and so on. Banu, to build, to build. The gods are building. Just as God himself, the true God, in Genesis 2 creates the well-built woman, Eve. He builds the woman, doesn't he? In chapter 2, I think it's around verse 12. And it is as master artificer that God surveys his work and pronounces it good. He's both builder and inspector of buildings. Moses inspected the work in Genesis in Exodus 39 and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. When the, the builders at Babel got to work, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The building inspectorate had arrived with dire consequences in that case. Isaiah 41, verse 7, watch this one. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith, and he who smooths with a hammer spurs on him who strikes the anvil. He says of the welding, it is good. It's the making of an idol there, isn't it? It's satire, it's polemic. But there is the artificer, the craftsman at work. One or two of them, actually. And the pronouncement is made at the end, it is good. And God the workman, come inspector, in Genesis 1, pronounces it all good. And so pleased is he, is he with himself that he gives himself a double tick at the end. It's all very good. Alpha work by God himself. Now, we may read deeper insights into good and very good in Genesis 1, that it's anti-dualistic, you know, that uh, um, it's telling us that the material world is good and not evil and all that sort of thing. But I suspect the pronouncement of God operates properly at a more lowly level, telling of the artificer's satisfaction with what he has made. Now, that work w was done in six days. Here we get into the really tricky stuff. Is that the way it literally was? It's certainly the impression created by Exodus 20, verse 11. It's already springing to some of your minds. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. End of question. Or is Genesis, sorry, Exodus 20 simply reflecting the form of the story of creation known from Genesis 1 or its congener? Similar text or tradition. So also in that case, we should have to speak of Exodus 16 and the manna tradition. And so are we talking about a kind of creation narrative theology in which Exodus talks about God's making, not necessarily implying or requiring us to say that God did it literally in six days, but the form of the tradition which is given to us says that God acted in six days, and that is the structure within which the amazing, mighty, almighty work of creation is given to us, transposed into language, conceptuality, that we can, as humans, actually handle. If we return to day four momentarily, we may see the point of 
what I'm asking. The narrative or framework approach reasons thus. People worship the sun, moon, and stars. Let us show the subservient status of these heavenly bodies by putting them in day four, not in day one, in a literary structuring, right? Here is what literalism says, and I take this from a foremost advocate whom I shall not name. Human beings are eventually going to believe that the earth and other planets derive in one way or another from the sun, uh, whether you think of tidal theory, accretion, or nebular theory, but they're eventually going to attribute origins to the sun. Let us show the subservient status of the sun by creating it on day four. See the difference? In Genesis 1, in the one case, the polemic is expressed in the form of the narrative. In the other case, it, is, it has actually entered into the active creator's heart, and he works around his acts of creation so as to make a point in the sky already to uh, have a dig at those in the 20th and 21st centuries who would uh, attribute more to the sun than some of us would particularly want to allow. Quite a difference. Now, in the second case, that of literalism, rather more than Leviathan, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the Psalms, has become the plaything of the Almighty. He's playing around with the heavenly bodies in order to make his point. Day four is anti-evolutionary and perhaps rather spiteful. We should also note that the cited literalist view leaves out the moon and stars. They're part of what is mentioned in the verse in Genesis 1. And it bypasses the obvious historical context of the biblical text in which worship of the sun, moon, and stars is commonplace. Now, it's not a necessity of literalism that you attribute that kind of intentionality that I have quoted to God, but that is one of the views that has been popularized in our own time. The use of polemic in affirmations about creation possibly, possibly finds a parallel in Hebrews 11 and verse 3, and in a similar text in 2 Maccabees chapter 7, which is not in your or my Bible, I guess. If you follow the form of translation which runs, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That's different from saying that uh, what is seen was made out of what was not visible. Creation out of nothing, that's one thing. But actually to make it sound as if you are countering, what shall we call it, materialist views of creation is another thing. Listen to it again. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That is polemic. That is counterstatement. That is, to use my old, well-worn term, unsaying of another point of view or presentation. If this rendering is accepted with NIV, Hebrews is not so much making a statement about creation 
as countering another view of how the world was made, held outside the Judeo-Christian fold or folds. So in Genesis 1, there is counterstatement. There is unsaying. And as I said earlier, so now I say again unto you, we have defined the beginnings of a function in relation to that text. We could pursue that line. We could talk about uh, the creation of humans, for example, just as we did in the sermon, and see their, what should we call it, polemic, unsaying, counterstatement. As we proceed into chapter 6 of Genesis and chapter 11, Babel, we have very startling instances of polemic, and perhaps elsewhere along the way. But I want, just for a moment or two, to address the larger issue in a kind of parallel operation of the Bible and science and the kind of information that it is the business of the Bible to communicate. It is easy to make comprehensive claims, especially in areas like cosmology and origins. We may do so on the authority of Scripture. Science may do so on the basis of its findings or, for lack of full data, may incline to speculation as often. But let's take a case nearer home. It's been noted that the Bible does not show awareness of or interest in our nervous and circulatory systems. Perhaps that's too abstract, given the nature of the, the biblical material and its religious and spiritual focus. So let's rephrase. What has the Bible to say about the brain and its function. As we know, physiological functions that we confidently and soundly associate with the brain are in Scripture attributed to other such organs as the heart, liver, and kidneys. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my kidneys instruct me says Psalm 16, verse 7. That means more when you're over 50 and a male, they say. Even at night, my kidneys instruct me. Now, dynamic equivalence, and I tremble at even the thought of that in this case, has determined for NIV that it should be my heart instructs me. It's not the word for heart, not the normal word that's used in uh, the psalm. Jeremiah, you are always on their lips, but far from their kidneys. NIV, hearts. The implications for biblical biology and physiology are obvious and incidentally show that it's not just a matter of what the Bible says that we need to deal seriously with when it comments on something that relates to science, if we may just use that term. What it doesn't say the terms it doesn't use, the functions it doesn't describe, the negatives, the absentee factors are also significant when you address this very big question. Is there a lesson to be learned for cosmology as well? That the Bible gives us an inspired language, transposed realities, that are not in every case, and don't ask me afterwards how you decide which case is yes and which case is not, but 
let me just put in the self-saving, self-serving, which not in every case are to be interpreted with absolute unyielding literalness. The Genesis proto-history does not, according to most people, explain arthritic dinosaurs. It doesn't explain some of the issues that it itself raises, why humans have to subdue the earth pre-fall, why the serpent was already basely cunning, where Cain, if I may go on into uh, chapter 4, where Cain found the population, well, not just to get a wife, but for the city that he named after his son that needs a few people to build a city already in the days of Cain. And yet, and yet, and yet, those chapters, that account and or those accounts, those narratives, stand out from and above the polytheistic stories of creation in the surrounding cultures. How can we explain this? Why did it happen? Where from the quantum leap? I'm reminded of my earlier days in Glasgow University. My first job was up there. I had a, I suppose he was an agnostic a Jewish colleague who came in, a medic who came in um, Thursdays to the staff seminars and led us in our reading of Ugaritic text because his hobby was uh, Ugaritic, Canaanite texts. And though he had his doubts and misgivings about all manner of things in relation to the Bible, he often enough would say, something happened at Sinai. I take that back to early Genesis. Something happened. Whatever the degree of science or history that is there to elevate these texts and the truth they convey way above the polytheistic and other alternatives of the ancient world. The psalmist, prophets, poets, and wisdom people knew the other traditions, could refer to the beasts, Leviathan, and so on. But the text in its sober prose is an, an altogether higher level. Of course, much of the quality, the quiet sublimity of the text derives from the conception of the God that underlies it. He creates without rival or contest. I am the Lord who's made all things. I am the one who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. He creates and sustains an ordered universe that he pronounces in its totality very good. Evil is not intrinsic to the world or the universe. He is not part of creation, but apart from it. He is not a personification of insentient powers or forces of nature. And we could go on making assertions like that. You say, what's your basis for them? You can import into Genesis, can't you, very easily? Of course we can. But we make these assertions about Genesis 1 because we can also check them against many another following scripture, even within the Old Testament. We are told that X billion years ago, the physical universe was compressed into a point of infinite density and was smaller than a green pea. We're beginning to think of lunch. And then came the Big Bang. And we're told, and probably it is the case, that the galaxies are moving away from us and from one another at a great rate. Yet, when we look out and up, it all seems pretty stable. Even when we look into the sky, we allow for a little of Earth's spin and planetary motion. But with Psalm 8 and yesterday's text, 
we still, post-fall, can hail the creation and the Creator and celebrate what is. And how and when did it all come into being? I know not, but I suspect that in Genesis 1, the higher truths have been transposed into something to which ancient Israel, and most of us, can easily relate. And it's God at work within the framework or construct of a working week. Now, I want ever so briefly, uh, at least I hope so, to give you three points of general import in relation to all this before I stop, sit down, or I'm carried away. The first is this. We live in a world of pain and struggle. Such a world for the anguished millions, and they are such, is time-lapsed. Time seems to stand still. The agonies seem never-ending. God takes his time. If Genesis 1 requires us to believe that God made the universe in 6 by 24 a few years ago, then one can but wonder why the Jobian angst must be so interminably long. It all seems out of proportion. Six literal days and young earth may prove right. Who can really tell? But unintentionally, it may buy into our quick-fix world of the 20th and 21st centuries, where few of God's other acts are quick-fix, where his coming quickly takes 1,900 years, and as I think you say in America, and then some. Second point. Creation in 4004, or 5004, or, or, or for that matter, sits ill with our increasing knowledge of the world of the 5th, 4th, and 3rd millennia BC. Today, and for a while, the first indications of writing have been dated to the second half of the 4th millennium, Uruk and Kish, and so on. That means that we might expect to have a note or two from Adam himself, perhaps a B.A. do to Eve. You're looking divine this morning, darling. You know that kind of thing. Though the Old Testament itself is not interested in the beginnings of writing. It just gets on my writing. Um, in other cultures may comment on who started off writing, who was the god of writing or not. You just ask yourself the question, where even in Genesis 4, the arts and crafts, does, does writing get a mention? Anyway. Somehow, this expectation that we could find a, a banana leaf with uh, Adam's signature on it uh, seems unlikely. And for the reason that confining human history to the genealogical data in Genesis is to misuse the data. Most people agree that at least it may be, they may be selective. Whether they are furthermore symbolical, of course, is to get into more difficult uh, waters. So too with the flood. Did it happen, for instance, in the 24th century? In my old ancient history days in Glasgow, I was talking very confidently and in considerable detail about Sargon of Akkad and his doings in the 24th century down there in southern Mesopotamia and the other kings, Naram Sin and all the rest, in the um, succession to Sargon. And the flood, and it clearly was, according to Genesis, a universal flood. Did that happen in the 24th century? Is our chronology a la Usher 
and literalism, really, to compete with all the textual evidence and so on that we have. Thirdly, we can have our gap theory. I haven't talked about that, and I won't, in Genesis 1, verse 2. We can introduce our pluperfects, evangelical pluperfects, be they, at Genesis 2, verse 8, and chapter 2, verse 19, and move and manipulate the text to suit whatever view we have. But sooner or later, this pulling and stretching of the text calls out violence. And we have to desist from imposing our logic and our science on the sacred text. What it teaches in its simplicity is indeed sublime. And its following of the basic outline of human history as told in the surrounding cultures is also obvious to the student of ancient literature. What it does to that outline, what it does to the master story or stories, is what sets it apart as truly revelatory and as preparatio, as preparation for the good things of the gospel. Thank you very much for your patient listening. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.